You are listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I serve as the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Right now, teaching an Old Testament class and getting ready to teach two New Testament classes. So welcome to the podcast. Glad you're listening to Understanding Christianity. You know, I've done a lot of interaction over the years with those who hold to a non-Calvinistic, non-Reformed understanding of salvation and of the nature of God and the nature of man. And one of the things I often hear Calvinists make against non-Calvinists, and here I am, I'm, I'm going to address Calvinists first because I often hear this in my own circles, is that we sometimes, not myself, but I, I hear this often, is that they will um, make this charge against non-Calvinists and they'll say to those that are either Arminian or synergistic or provisionism or traditional SBC, they'll say that you guys take credit for your salvation. Uh, You can boast about your salvation because after all, it was your decision. And so because you used your free will, you can take credit for that and therefore you can boast about your salvation. So you really don't believe in grace alone. Now, this is a straw man, even when I was a non-Calvinist. You know, I'm thinking back 25 years ago before I embraced Reformed theology, when I was a synergist, um, I never took credit for my salvation, even when I believed in the doctrine of free will. I believed even when I chose freely to accept Christ for salvation using my libertarian free will, I still believed that God was not obligated to save me, but that he chose to save me when I responded in repentance and faith, and that my salvation was by grace alone. So we need to be very careful when we accuse our non-reformed friends of holding to either a works-based salvation, I often hear that, Or charging that if they use their free will, then somehow they're taking credit for their own salvation. And sometimes we can get so bogged down in this whole idea of merit, this discussion on taking credit for our salvation, talking about free will, that I I think sometimes we don't get to the heart of what the real differences are. So one of the things I've tried to do over the years is to really get to the heart of the true differences between the views. Because oftentimes on Facebook and when I hear other people debate, uh, sometimes they go around in circles arguing issues that really they shouldn't be arguing because there's agreement. So let me just give two statements that I think all evangelical Christians can agree upon, regardless of your theological stripe. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, you would believe both of these statements to be true. So here's the first statement. No sinner will be saved unless he or she responds to the call of God. I think all of us would agree with that. No sinner will be saved unless they respond to the call of God to be saved. Okay, second statement. No sinner will be saved unless God shows them grace. Okay, so we both agree that sinners are saved by grace and that sinners are called to salvation. Now, the real difference that divides the Reformed view from the non-Reformed or the provisionistic view or the synergistic or the Arminian view is what's the nature of the call and what's the nature of the grace. That's the real crux of the issue. Not is there a call necessary 
or not, is grace necessary? We both agree that sinners need to be called to salvation and sinners need to be saved by grace. The question becomes, what's the nature or what's the fundamental aspect of that call and that grace? So in Reformed theology, we argue that the Bible teaches two kinds of calls. Number one, we believe that we see an outward, universal, indiscriminate call of the gospel that goes out to all people everywhere. It's the external calling. It's when a pastor preaches a sermon. It's when you share the gospel verbally. It's the, it's the message going out of your mouth to people's ears to hear the outward call. But as Reformed theologians, we also believe that there is an inward, effectual, sovereign call that goes specifically to the elect that actually does something. Now, provisionists and others that are non-Calvinistic, they deny the two calls. They really only see one call from God. And that one call can be rejected or resisted. So if you don't answer the call when God calls, that becomes your fault. The reason for you not answering the call doesn't lie in God's sovereign choice to save sinners with that effectual call, but instead... The answer lies in you using your libertarian free will to say no or yes when God called you. So, Reformed theology sees two callings. An outward, universal, indiscriminate call and an inward, effectual, sovereign call. Now, Reformed theology also argues that the Bible teaches that God's grace is not a mere gift or an offer that can be accepted or refused. We instead argue that God's grace is effectual. This means that the grace actually brings about a comprehensive change in the sinner, which indeed overcomes all obstacles in coming to faith in Christ. Now, our provisionist friends... They obviously view God's grace as necessary for salvation. Again, we're not going to charge them with saying that they're saved by works or that they are taking credit for their salvation because they believe in libertarian free will. Let's just stop those arguments. They believe in grace. The question is not do they believe in grace. We all believe in grace. The question is what's the nature of the grace? They believe in grace but not an effectual, internal, mystical type of grace. They believe that sinners can use their libertarian free will to say no to God's grace. It's an offer. It's something God provides. It's something that God extends. It's a gospel appeal. But at the end of the day, you can choose to reject that grace. So here's the question I want to ask on this podcast. Does the Bible, in fact, teach an inward, effectual call that God gives to the elect alone that ensures that they will infallibly come to faith in Christ. Okay, so that's the question. Does the Bible indeed, because I've heard um, like Leighton Flowers and others say that in Reformed theology we have two of everything. We have a divine decree and we have a prescriptive decree. We have an outward call, we have an inward call. We have uh, this type of thing and that type. We have two of everything. And, and the reason that we, we don't have two of everything, but sometimes the reason that we see these double meanings or these double definitions or these distinct definitions is because we understand the Bible addresses that. 
And this is just a systematic way of putting a label to what we believe the Bible teaches. So the question then becomes, does the Bible in fact teach an inward effectual call that God gives to the elect alone that ensures that they will infallibly come to faith in Christ? And I would answer, yes, the Bible does teach that. But fundamental to understanding this doctrine is a necessary corollary doctrine. So both the two doctrines go hand in hand in Reformed theology that work together. It's the doctrine of total inability. If you deny total inability, you will see no need for the effectual call. Okay, what is total inability? Total inability is not that you are as depraved as you could be or that you're merely corrupted by sin. All Christians believe in total depravity to some extent. Total inability takes it a step further and says that you and I, because of Adam's fall, in our sinful state that we're born with, have lost all capacity to want to be saved or all capacity to somehow be saved. We lack the ability to come to faith in Christ and we lack the desire. We can't, we won't, and we don't want to. And if you believe in total inability, then there's got to be the corollary effectual calling or sovereign regeneration that answers the question, okay, well, how does that total inability get addressed? How is it overcome? And obviously, the answer to that is the effectual call. Now, in some reform circles, you may be a little conf- confused because sometimes you hear regeneration separated out from effectual calling. Um, they, they separate those out. I like to think of it this way. Um, I, I like to think that the effectual call precedes regeneration, but they're both kind of the same thing. Let me give you an analogy. When you turn on your water faucet and water comes out, it happens instantaneously. You turn on the water faucet, the water comes out. Okay, so, so you turn on the faucet, the water comes out. Both happen at the same time. But here's the question. Would the water come out if the faucet had not opened it up? Which comes first, the turning on of the faucet or the water coming out? Well, the turning on of the faucet. So, in other words, the effectual call is, is kind of the first thing that God uses to bring about the regeneration. And so I'm not as bothered as if, if you combine those two together, because I think the Bible is very clear that there is an effectual call that's related to regeneration or being born again. John 3, 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He can't see the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so he doesn't even know what the kingdom of heaven is. He doesn't know what his need is. He doesn't even know how to enter the kingdom of heaven because he doesn't even know what it is, that there is a need for salvation. Um, now, I've heard non-Calvinists and provisionists say something like, well, just because you can't see the kingdom of heaven or can't enter the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean that you can't admit your need to be in the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's an argument from silence because here the Bible basically says you can't see the kingdom. There's a spiritual blindness that's preventing you from seeing it and entering it. It doesn't say anything about how you have the ability to see it if you just admit that you can't see it. It's kind of playing a semantic game there. Uh, Jesus goes on in verse 6 to say, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is everyone who's born of the Spirit. This is a spiritual birth that the Holy Spirit produces in a person where they are passive. That's the key word. They are passive in this, in the sense that you don't cause yourself to be born again. You don't blow like the wind, somehow bringing that life. You don't blow like the wind, somehow bringing that life to yourself. The Holy Spirit's got to give birth to spiritual life. And so we can't see the kingdom unless we're born again. Romans 8, 6 through 8, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So this relates to the mind. Now, total depravity, total inability affects the heart, the mind, the will. All three aspects of the, of the, of the person. Now, obviously, these are synonyms. The Bible often talks about the heart, but there are aspects to the emotional aspect of your, of your life, uh, the thinking aspect of your life, and the choosing and the volitional aspect of your life. And so this is the mind. The, the unregenerate mind is hostile to God. And those who are in the flesh, those who are unregenerate, those who are unsaved, cannot please God, cannot submit. Again, this talks about total inability. They cannot please God. And, and I will say this, what pleases God? Does believing in Jesus please God? Are we commanded to repent and believe in Jesus? Yes, we are. Those are definitely things that please God. Can you do that in and of yourselves if your mind is set on the flesh, if you're unregenerate? No, you can't do that. So you can't see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. And the hostile fleshly mind is at enmity against God and cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Now, in Paul's conversation in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, all the way through chapter 2, Paul's making a distinction between those who accept the gospel and those who reject it as foolish or moronic. And one of the words he keeps using is folly, which in the original Greek text is where we get our word moronic, foolishness. And and in chapter 2 here, he's talking about the natural person. The natural person is the unregenerate person, the unsaved person, the person without Christ. What can't that person do? They can't accept the things of the Spirit. They can't accept those things. They're foolishness. And what are those things of the Spirit? What's the thing that Paul has been arguing all the way through chapter 1? The message of the cross. The foolishness of the cross. We're going to get to that here in just a moment. Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block. He, he can't, the natural person can't accept that. He's not able to understand that because it's spiritually discerned. So you have to have a Holy Spirit work done in your heart and mind to give you understanding. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, just a few passages of Scripture here teach that the unregenerate, unsaved person, by nature, as a child of wrath, is unable to see the kingdom of heaven, is hostile in mind to God's truth, is unable to do what pleases God, is unable to understand spiritual truth and accept that truth, and is spiritually dead and enslaved to Satan and enslaved to the flesh. So, if that condition is true, which we believe that's a pretty comprehensive definition of total inability, so here's the question, when presented the gospel... What fundamentally, what fundamentally happens in the sinner to, number one, overcome this inability? Or how can a person repent and believe in Jesus when presented the gospel? In other words, when the call to repent and believe comes to a sinner, do they have the ability to repent and believe without aid or without grace? Now, again, we all believe that grace is necessary. There's agreement upon this. The question is not, is grace necessary? The question is, what type of grace is needed and what type of calling is this? Because we've, we've already established, hopefully you're tracking with me, hopefully you can agree with me that no sinner saved unless they respond to God's call. No sinner is saved unless they are given grace. Those two things we, we agree upon. You have to be called and you have to receive grace. The question is, what type of calling is it and what's the nature of the grace? Okay, is the grace needed kind of an assisting grace that enables a response? God gives you some grace, the rest is up to you, but there's still some grace required. Is the grace needed the mere presentation of biblical truth? I.e., somebody presents to you the gospel, you hadn't heard the gospel before, now you've heard the gospel, and that Holy Spirit-inspired truth that's come to you is enough grace to enable you to say yes to God's gospel appeal. Is the grace needed like a prevenient type of grace given to all people? People are spiritually dead, they're in bondage to sin. They have total inability. But God gives to every single person a measure of prevenient grace that enables them or assists them to use their free will. Or is the grace needed an effectual sovereign grace given only to the elect to overcome this spiritual deadness and inability? Those are kind of your choices, and I'll give you labels to them. Um, the first one is provisionism. Provisionism is the grace that God gives you is the Holy Spirit-inspired truth of the gospel that enables a response to you to say yes to God's gracious appeal. So provisionism denies total inability and denies that there's any type of effectual inward sovereign grace. Humans have libertarian free will. The inability is the fact that they didn't know the message of the gospel. They hadn't heard. Once they've heard the message of the gospel that came to them, that is the grace. And that message, the word alone, 
and the Spirit, but the Spirit not doing an internal work is enough, is sufficient to enable a response positively to God's gracious appeal to be saved. The other one is Arminianism. Arminianism believes in total depravity. Arminianism believes in total inability. Arminianism believes that that spiritual deadness needs to be overcome. The answer to the overcoming is prevenient grace given to all people, which is an assisting or a helping grace, but not a sovereign grace. The third view is Reformed theology, that we are totally depraved and totally unable to come to faith because we're spiritually dead and enslaved to sin, and so the Holy Spirit has to effectually and sovereignly grant grace only to the elect, and that grace actually brings us all the way to salvation from first to last. Now, let's look at some passages of Scripture that talk about calling, because that's the question we're answering in this podcast. Does the Bible indeed teach an effectual inward call that is distinct from an outward call that goes out to all people that can be rejected? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22-24. Paul says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay, Paul preached Christ crucified to both Jews and Gentiles. And what was the response from these groups? For the Jew, the mere message of Jesus in the gospel was a stumbling block, Paul said. For some Gentiles, the mere message of Jesus in the gospel, him crucified, was moronic. So, question, is the mere preaching of Christ crucified in the gospel the necessary grace to enable a response. Because in verse 24, Paul gives a qualifier. He says, but to those who are called from both groups, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, they accepted the message and were saved. So why were others not saved when presented with the same information? Okay, so what's the same thing about Okay, so let's talk about similarities. You got the same message. What's the same message? Christ crucified. It's the gospel appeal. It's the message of the gospel. Okay, who does it go out to? It goes out to both Jews and Gentiles. Some Jews found it a stumbling block and rejected it. Some Gentiles found it moronic and foolish and rejected it. But other Jews received the message. Some Gentiles receive the message. So, why? Well, Paul says it was because they were called. Even when presented with the information. Now, one could say that they freely chose to reject the message or receive the message because they had the libertarian free will to do so. But that's not how Paul answers it. Paul gives the defining or the determining issue as to the distinction between the belief. Why do some reject and why do some believe? Paul does not say they use their free will. Paul says it was because they were called to those that were called. Okay, so you have to ask the question, what 
type of calling is this? Is this the outward call that goes out that can be rejected? Or is this an effectual call? So ask yourself a question. Ask yourself whether those for whom Jesus was a stumbling block and foolishness were called. Were they called? If Paul had been thinking of only the outward gospel call, he would have answered yes to that question. He would have said, well, obviously they were called because everybody's called. There's no effectual call that that actually brings about the belief or the response. Everybody's called. Well, why did some reject it? They were not called. Okay, here's the point. In Paul's audience, everyone was called with an outward call. What did they hear? They heard the message of Christ crucified. Why did some reject it? They were not called. They were called outwardly, but not called inwardly. If they had been called inwardly and effectually, they would have embraced Jesus and not found the gospel to be foolish or a stumbling block. So let's ask the question another way. Why did only some respond in faith to Jesus when everyone heard the same outward call? How does Paul answer that? Because you would think that Paul would insert libertarian free will. Paul would insert you could resist the call. Paul would insert some type of human mechanism. Paul says God was the one that called. Now, he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31, For consider your calling, brothers... Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay, so Paul gives the answer. Okay, here's the question. Why did some find it offensive and moronic and a stumbling block, and why did others accept it? It's because of the call. Okay, is that just a general outward call that goes to everybody that can be rejected? No, it has to be an inward, effectual call. And and here's where Paul takes it further. It's a result of election, of God's choosing. The reason that some responded to the call was because they were chosen to do so. The effectual call only goes to those chosen by God. And so we have to link not only total inability to effectual calling, but it's got to be linked back to unconditional election. That the effectual call only goes to those whom God has chosen and they will infallibly come. Okay, let's go to another famous passage of Scripture that talks about calling. Let's go to Romans 8, 28 through 30. We know that those, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, who has all things work together for good? Well, Paul gives two qualifiers there, two definitions. Those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And so let's ask the question, do all things work together for those who've merely been outwardly called, but yet never responded to faith in Jesus? Do all things work together for good for those who just hear the gospel call, regardless of whether they believe it or not? Does everyone who has been outwardly called, do they love God? 
You have to answer no to those. And so this is not just talking about a mere outward call that can be rejected, but there's a limitation and specificity to the call. And so our our provisionist friends will argue that when the outward call goes forth, sinners, because they have libertarian free will, are free to accept or reject the call. But we also know that from verse 30, the call has to be effectual because those that are called are also justified. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the golden chain of redemption. You can't have people who are justified who haven't been called. Does it make sense that every person who's been merely called outwardly but never believed in Jesus is also justified? Now, you have to tie those things together. So when you, when you see these passages that talk about God's calling, oftentimes it's related to God's choosing. Oftentimes it's related to a specificity that actually brings about the, the response. And so there, there's no insertion there of ability or inability to accept the call. There's no insertion there of human free will. Um, if you practice these, you know, human free will is the cause of accepting the call. I think that's an inference that if when God calls, it's up to you whether you accept it. Like, you know, if, if, if the president calls you on the phone... You can choose to pick up the phone and answer, or you can, or you can reject it. It's, it's kind of like an outward call. Um, that, that's kind of the, the way it works in their minds, the, the non-Calvinistic view, where we would say, no, it's an inward, effectual call. Now, let's talk, let's talk about another passage of Scripture, 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Okay, so confirm your calling and election. That's very interesting. Your calling and election. In the original Greek text, there's one definite article in front of these two nouns, calling and election. It doesn't say, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. Two definite articles, your in front of calling and your in front of election. It's one definite article, your, in front of two verbs, calling and election. When you see that structure in Greek, it really treats those two as kind of like one unit of thought. Like those two things are so tied together. So Peter ties calling to election. So what kind of calling is this that you're supposed to confirm or make sure? Does it make any sense to tell someone to make his or her calling sure if that calling is only, you know, make sure you've heard the gospel message. Make sure you've heard the gospel call. Make sure you've heard the outward presentation of the gospel. It doesn't make any sense. It only makes sense if it's an inward, effectual call. Basically what Peter's saying is make sure you've been effectually called as a result of your election. Now, I've often heard People say, how do I know if I'm an elect? How do I know if I'm one of the elect? Well, here's the, the, the answer. How do you know you're one of the elect? You've repented and believed in Jesus. God has called you and you said yes. It's that simple. God chose certain individuals to be saved before the foundation of the world. At a point in time, he called you through the outward call, 
whether that was at vacation Bible school under the pastor or at a Christian concert or reading your Bible, somehow the word of God came to you outwardly, but yet there was an inward work of the spirit that actually brought you all the way to faith and you personally repented and believed. So how do you know you're elect? Well, because you were called. How do you know you were called? Because you answered the call and said yes to Jesus. Now, let me just give you some good things from the um, 1689. Many of you know that's the confession of faith that we hold to, the, the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, chapter 10 on effectual calling. It just kind of distills this doctrine down into some really good statements that we can interact with. So let me just read to you from paragraph one. Those whom God hath predestined unto life, he's pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Those whom God predestined into life. Again, effectual calling is directly a result of predestination. Before the foundation of the world, God predestined a fixed number of people to be saved. But at an appointed and accepted time, at that time when God has for you your moment of conversion, your moment of salvation, your moment of, of calling, that that appointed and accepted time, and it's, it's God's appointed and accepted time for you, God effectually calls you. And how does he do this? He does this by his word and spirit. Now, again, the provisionist sees this kind of as mutually exclusive, that the presentation of the gospel is the Spirit-inspired grace needed to enable a response. We see both need to be there in the Reformed view. We see that the Word of God must be preached. No one can call upon the name of the Lord unless they've heard. So there needs to be a clear presentation of gospel truth, but that's not enough. There also must be an internal effectual work of the Holy Spirit deep within the heart and mind of the sinner. And so what I really love about the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, and it's pretty much word for word taken from the Westminster Confession of Faith. So um, our Presbyterian friends and us Reformed Baptists, we both understand this the same way. Um, They give some really good descriptions of what actually happens in the effectual call. What does God do in the effectual call? And so here's kind of a listing in the rest of of the paragraph of what the, the confession says God does according to the scriptures in the effectual call. Okay, so here's the first, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. Enlightening their minds. Okay, so this again focuses on the corruption of the mind, that the mind needs to be enlightened so that the mind understands the things of God. Remember, we believe that the unsaved person's mind has been radically corrupted by the fall, that the spiritual person does not accept the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. Let me give you an example of this. Um, Lydia, in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, Paul goes to the town of Philippi, and there's not enough men to have a synagogue service. So he gets word that there's some women that are down by the river, and he goes down and begins to preach the gospel to them. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. This is from Acts 16, 14. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Okay, I want you to look at that. 
First of all, let's go backwards in the text. What was said by Paul? Okay, Paul was saying things. He was presenting the word. He was presenting the truth. So there's the gospel appeal. We're not given what Paul preached, but we know from other areas in Acts and from his epistles, probably some of the content. He's probably preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's probably calling them to repent and believe. He is presenting with words the things said by Paul. Okay, what did Lydia do? She paid attention. She received, and we find out later on she was baptized. So we infer that she received Paul's message. Now, one thing that Luke adds there, just so that we don't think that this is just mere information or just the mere gospel appeal or that it's just the words alone, he says the Lord opened her heart to be able to do that. Now, why would Luke say the Lord opened her heart? What does that tell us about her heart? Well, if the Lord had to open her heart, it's a monergistic work or a sovereign work where God had to be the one to do the work on the heart. It doesn't say Lydia opened her own heart. It doesn't say that Lydia had the inherent ability to pay attention to the gospel appeal when Paul said things. Luke goes out of his way to say that when the gospel is presented, in order for a person to receive the gospel, the Lord had to open her heart. Heart. Because the heart is deceitful. Her heart was hardened. Her heart, the human heart. Now again, Luke doesn't tell us Lydia had a hard heart. It doesn't say that her heart was, was des- desperately wicked. We, we build a full theology of the, of the theology of the heart. So if you want to go through and look at what the Bible teaches about the unregenerate heart, you have to assume that Lydia is unregenerate when Paul preaches to her and Luke focuses on the fact that the Lord opened her heart because her heart needed to be opened in order to respond or to pay attention or to believe the message Paul said. So what's the issue with the heart? Well, this is the next thing that's said in the confession. Taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. So the mind needs to be enlightened and the heart needs to be changed. This heart of stone language comes from Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. And this is God prophesying of a day of something he was going to do in the future. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes to be okay, be careful to obey my rules. God has to do a heart transplant. He has to take out the dead, stony, spiritual heart that's in rebellion and grant new life. He's got to do this internal heart change. He's got to put the Holy Spirit in you. God does this. Again, I've heard provisionists and others say that just because God has to do a heart replacement doesn't mean that you can't that you can't admit that you need a new heart and then by you admitting that you basically say God you know give me a new heart again that's putting you in the driver's seat basically saying I I kind of admit I have a bad heart therefore God I'm giving you permission to replace my heart Uh, nowhere do we ever find God asking permission when he decides to confer sovereign grace Think about Lazarus when Jesus called him forth from the tomb. He didn't ask Lazarus' permission. 
He didn't, Paul didn't um, ask Lydia's permission. The Lord, the Lord didn't ask Lydia's permission. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord replaced the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. It's, it's God's unilateral sovereign choice to do that. So the mind has to be spiritually um, enlightened. The heart has to be made new because the heart's spiritually dead. But then the confession goes on to say, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good. So not only does the heart need to be changed, not only does the mind need to be changed, but the will, the will, the choosing, in in the sense that because we're totally depraved and totally unable to come to faith in Christ, our wills do not want to come to faith in Christ, and our wills cannot make that choice because we're dead. We have to be made alive. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Now, notice this is the grace passage of scripture, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And right here, God is rich in mercy. God is rich in love. Even when we were dead, God made us alive. We don't admit our need for God to make us alive and then he responds by making us alive. We don't make ourselves alive. God chooses to show grace in salvation by doing the unilateral work to make us alive. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So how can you have the right will How can you choose for Jesus? It's because God has to work in you. God has to overcome that enslaved will. God has to renew that. And so the last part of the confession says this, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. Okay, so the the mind has to be enlightened, the heart has to be changed, the will has to be renewed, and in this, God effectually draws us to Jesus where we come freely. At John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. Those whom the Father has given to the Son in divine election will in fact come. And then later on down in John 6, 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So no one can come to Jesus because of the mind, heart, and will being spiritually dead. But once God draws, once God calls, once God effectually does that working, all those that were given to Jesus by the Father will, in fact, come. And so paragraph two of this explains the reason for the coming. Okay, so Paragraph two, this effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone from nothing at all foreseen in man. Okay, that's important. This is kind of more the Arminian foresight view. God looked down through the corridors of time. He saw who would use their libertarian free will to choose. And based upon what God saw, God chose or God called or God offered his grace, knowing that once that was offered, it would be accepted because people had the libertarian free will. And the confession is very um, 
quick to protect against that idea that God did not foresee any sinner using libertarian free will, then on the basis of what God saw, then God called them to salvation because this would make God a contingent and relying upon human freedom. This is God's eternal purpose. 2 Timothy 1.9, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God called us to this holy calling, to this salvation calling, this effectual calling. It wasn't because of anything we did or God foresaw that we would do, but what's the purpose? What's the reason? God called us because of his own purpose and grace. And when was that purpose and grace? It was before the ages began, which means it was, a fixed, it was a fixed decree. It wasn't something that God saw on the fly or something God responded to. This decision to call and to save and to elect and to bring us to salvation was all part of God's eternal purpose and grace that was fixed from before the foundation of the world in his sovereign decree. The second thing that the confession says is that this did not happen from any power or agency in the creature, but wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses. Again, this is a denial in the confession of libertarian free will. It is an affirmation of total inability and the fact that we are totally passive in the effectual call in regeneration because we are dead in sins. And then until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, He's thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. So once you're, you're quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, you are then able to answer the call, and in the sense that it's an effectual call. The effectual call comes from the Holy Spirit. It's, an, it's effectual because it actually creates the faith. It actually brings you to faith. It actually makes you say yes to Jesus, embrace Christ as Savior freely. And then the last thing they say there is that this is no less than the power which raised Christ from the dead, meaning that this effectual call, this regeneration by the Holy Spirit is supernatural, powerful, so much so that it's like the power of God that raised Jesus from the grave. Titus 3, 4 through 7, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask the question again that we asked at the very beginning. Does the Bible teach that God's grace is effectual, sovereign, it actually accomplishes his eternal purpose. It actually infallibly brings to faith the elect. Or does the Bible teach that God's grace is merely an offer that is contingent upon human response? And is the gospel call to everyone? It's just an outward call only. And then people have the libertarian free will to accept or reject the call. Does the Bible teach that the nature of human depravity is so helpless and hopeless and hell-bound that we desperately need an act of sovereign grace to overcome our spiritual deadness and inability? Or does the Bible teach that the nature of human depravity is that we are sinful but not desperate in that we still retain the ability to see the kingdom of God, to admit our need for the kingdom of God, 
to, to love God's truth when it's presented instead of hating God's truth, to understand spiritual things when they're given to us, to submit to God's law, and to free ourselves from slavery to sin. Because we're not actually spiritually dead, we're merely sick, or we're depraved and corrupted, but once the gospel appeal comes to us, we have the ability to respond positively without any type of overcoming, effectual, internal, sovereign grace. Again, the fundamental issue is not the fact is grace necessary for salvation or that God must call sinners to salvation. We established that at the very beginning. No sinner will be saved unless they respond to God's call to be saved. No sinner will be saved unless saved by grace. There has to be a call. There has to be grace. The real issue is, and the real distinction and difference is the fundamental nature of that grace and of that calling. Is it an effectual calling and is it sovereign grace or is it an outward calling that can be rejected and is it grace that can be resisted? So hopefully when we think about, when we talk about grace and calling, when we talk with our provisionist and our Arminian and our non-Calvinistic brothers and sisters, we can always start. I like to always start where we're both in agreement. Because sometimes we start to get where we're disagreeing and we can run around in circles and we can never really get to the real issue. And I think if you start with points of agreement, then you can kind of distill down, you can drill down to, okay, where are the fundamental differences? Because there's a whole lot more we have in common, okay? We're not Pelagians here that believe that you, you, know, you can save yourself or that there's no need for grace. And so we just need to be respectful when we interact with other people's viewpoints. Well, I appreciate you listening to Understanding Christianity. You can give us a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever type of platform you listen to. You can go to seancole.net to get my contact information. You can go to my Facebook page. Uh, just find Sean Cole, or you can go to the Understanding Christianity Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm not as much on Twitter as I'm on Facebook, um, but we would love to hear from you if you have any ideas for future podcasts. So may God bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you, and may we all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus.